Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest. You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is laborunionnews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So if you're a laborunionnews.com subscriber, you probably know that um, for the last week, week and a half, I've been out on the road. And so this episode of Labor Relations Radio is actually coming to you remotely. And the headset and mic that I'm using is not my normal one, so my voice may be a little bit garbled. But rather than canceling Labor Relations Radio while I'm on the road, I wanted to uh, bring to you a couple guests this week. And my first guest has been a real treat. We had a conversation earlier today, and his name is Mark Gaston Pierce. And he is the former board member and chairman of the National Labor Relations Board who served by appointment of President Barack Obama. And he was chairman of the board from August 2011 till January of 2017. And prior to his time with the board, Chairman Pierce was founding partner of the Buffalo, New York law firm of Creighton Pierce, Johnson and Giroux, where he practiced union and plaintiff side labor and employment law. Now, since leaving the board, Chairman Pierce has been a visiting professor and executive director of the Workers' Rights Institute at Georgetown University Law Center. And prior to assuming his positions at Georgetown, he's a visiting senior scholar and lecturer at the Cornell University's School of Industrial Labor Relations, or ILR. ILR program. In any case, I didn't want to cancel because I'm, I'm traveling, and so we had a conversation. Um, now, given the fact that I'm remote right now, the mic as well as the internet had a little bit of a glitch this, this afternoon, and you'll hear it um, during the podcast, but I do think it was a pretty wide-ranging discussion. I did not want to have a set agenda in talking to him other than how life is after the NLRB. So we, we talked about a lot of different things. In any case, here's Chairman Pierce. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Chairman Mark Pierce, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? Yes, great. Thank you. So... I wanted to have uh, just kind of a wide-ranging discussion, and you had been at the board for a number of years, um, and you had, you've been out of the public sector life for a little while. I think you're doing some, um, some part-time work for, is it the FLR, the well, Federal I'm, Labor Relations? It, well, it's a division of the FLRA. It's, it's the FISM, um board, which is stands for the Federal Service Impasse Panel. I'm a panel member. Okay. Uh, we deal with controversies that go to impasse in the federal public sector, and we resolve the impasses. And you're doing that part-time, you're also teaching now, right? That's right. I'm at Georgetown Law, uh, teaching some labor law courses, and I'm the executive director of the Workers' Rights Institute 
at Georgetown Law. That's cool. So, so let me ask you, um, what is life like outside of the NLRB? Out of the spotlight, well, so to speak. So far, it's been it's <laughs> so far it's been pretty great. I I uh, thought a while about what I wanted to do after I my term expired. Um, having uh, uh, three decades of of labor law experience, um, I wanted to do something that more or less gave back and, and addressed uh, the things that frustrate me about um, labor education to the workforce, to workers. Um, during the period that I was with the board, both as a field attorney and as a board member and policymaker, I know that the National Labor Relations Act, irrespective of its infirmities, still provides a lot of rights and that many workers just do not realize those rights. And there needed to be vehicles for getting that information out and facilitating uh, the utilization of those rights as best as they can be facilitated. Uh, this Workers' Rights Institute um, was created a few years ago with the general generous donation of a donor. And uh, the university worked with me to develop the focus of the institute. I leaped at the opportunity because I wanted something that dealt with not only education of workers with regard to the rights that they, they have and what kind of laws that are available for them, but I, it also provides an opportunity to encourage and develop labor law reform <coughs> to advise um, and uh, suggest legislation, and also to provide forums that explores different facets of labor relations issues, including the intersection of labor rights and civil rights. So uh, with all of that um, available, or, or all of those possibilities, I've been with my staff, building programs, providing opportunities for research assistance to, to dig into particular thorny issues that come up and keep abreast and inform the public about nuances and current trends in labor law with, with the NLRB focus in particular. Um, we've, we've had uh, webinars dealing with uh, NFL cheerleaders getting getting paid minimum wages. We did seminars on voter suppression and, and union workers. Uh, we are in co collaboration with other entities within 
Georgetown to develop codes to provide worker protections for food chain workers, similar to what the Workers' Rights Consortium does with licensed apparel. We're trying to do a similar thing with food chain workers because universities it's, uh, purchase a lot of food and students eat a lot of chicken. And as you know, during the uh, pandemic, all of the stuff that was happening with Smithfield and, and the like uh, created serious problems. I've commented and interviewed with, with a lot of entities with respect to what's going on with the, with the surge in, in organizing that is going on with Starbucks and with, with um, Amazon. I've appeared on, um, uh, on CNBC a, a few times. I've been interviewed by a lot of the major syndicates with respect to Amazon. And, and, um, and appeared in forums with, with Starbucks employees. Um, I hail in part from Buffalo, having worked and lived there for 30 years, and was pleased to uh, report that the Starbucks campaign started out in Buffalo. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and uh, and and I shared the stage with Michelle Eisen, who is an amazing organizer for Starbucks. And so let me. Let me ask you about the Institute. Um, it sounds as though it's more advocacy based. Is that accurate? Well, it's, it's, it's in part advocacy. It's in part education based. Um, and it's also, um, it's, uh, it facilitates self-determination by workers. So, what we want to do is is say, look, the reason why it's important to be activists relative to labor rights because there is a direct correlation between labor rights and civil rights. So that means workers of color, LBGTQ, immigrant women, a lot of marginalized workers, there is a direct connection between social justice issues and, and labor issues. So establishing those links and highlighting those links is an important piece. Then, then identifying the rights, letting people know that, yeah, the laws suck, but there are laws that if you understand them and know how to utilize them, they can work on your behalf. So educating folks about the, the, the laws is the, the next piece. And then the final piece is, well, how, did, how does it manifest itself? How do, how do you take your knowledge of the laws and do something with it? And we do that through partnership with, with volunteers, um, pairing uh, attorneys and academians with with the working public uh, to enable stronger connections in how one can manifest their rights once they're aware of them. So, um, and then in addition to that, as, as, as you suggest, we advocate for labor law reform. 
such as the PRO Act or, or more? Um, oh, sure. I testified both in the Congress and in the Senate with regard to the deficiencies of the Act and, and why the PRO Act would be beneficial in that regard. Well, one of the things that um, I'm going back to 2007-2008, the pre-PRO Act uh, was the Employee Free Choice Act. Right. And so that was three main components, um, which was card check, binding arbitration, and then fines. One of the things which is somewhat problematic with the PRO Act um, is that it is an all-encompassing, like, you know, it's just a, a big monstrosity of a bill. One of the things that I think was never focused on enough was binding arbitration in the in EFCA, and then it's also in the PRO Act. But, and, and this I'll say as, as a former union worker, I think the binding arbitration part has not been explored enough um, because it essentially takes away the rights of workers to even vote to accept or reject a contract, which there's a, a post right now on that's um, the World Socialist website that's that's criticizing the binding arbitration under the Railway Labor Act. I think that's what the uh, unions are trying to go for, but it's in. This is more as a worker advocate. If you take away that that right of workers to even go out on strike, which a binding arbitration would cause. Like, isn't that a taking away the rights of workers, a fundamental right? That's that's the binding arbitration that I've always found problematic, plus a job killer. Am, am I breaking up on you? Or well, yeah, you're, you're breaking up a little bit, but I think okay, I so. understand you. I think, I think everything has to be looked at in, in, in context. The, the PRO Act does what it uh, takes significant efforts to try to guarantee a first contract. And that includes uh, administrative steps, including the utilization of arbitrators in order to effectuate uh, that relationship. My belief is that the collective bargaining relationship uh, getting it established and, and getting a, a contract in place is the heart and soul of a beneficial and strong uh, relationship between workers and the employer. Um, there's a lot of give and take in, in, involved in all of, all of those circumstances. Historically, uh, strikes um, had their place, and quite frankly, I'm not clear about whether or not the the um, PRO Act is advocating uh, the elimination of the ability to 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 strike. There is a right to strike, and the PRO Act talks about that. And in fact, the PRO Act has provisions in it uh, eliminating the the ability of the employer to permanently replace. So in that respect, um, the right to strike is still preserved and still considered sacrosanct. Uh, what I think is beneficial about what the PRO Act proposes is that it requires certain activities in, 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 intermittent steps 
interim steps rather to take place during the first contract negotiations in order to best effectuate um, getting a first contract. As, as you might have seen the statistics, um, less than half of the uh, uh, bargaining units that win an election are able to win a first contract in, in the first year. In fact, the, the statistic is probably even worse than that. I just don't recall it at this time. Right. Um, and oftentimes an employer's strategy is, well, you know, I could do hard um, campaigning against the union, or I could let the union in and then play hardball at the, t the table and, and, and get the union, get disaffection, play, play up disaffection because the union can't get a first contract and have the union get decertified and then they're going to get barred for a year. And I, as an employer, will have an arrow in my quiver that I can always play and say, you had a union once and you see what the union did for you. So that's, that's uh, the kind of stuff that, that is detrimental to to establishing a strong collective bargaining relationship. And I think the PROACT's efforts in, in, in trying to cure that problem well, is I, one of the stronger pieces. I think um, part of the problem with, and this is just generally with labor relations, is you've got the employer side, you've got the union side, and each tries to cram their side on the other. And there's, so with the binding arbitration, that's only just one example, but it's, one of those things I've looked at it for years as, as a former union rep as being that's problematic for workers if you have the federal government basically through an arbitration panel imposing terms and conditions on both the workers and the employer. I think it's going to be problematic. If it happens, it happens, but I think it's also going to be problematic just from certain companies that will say, you know what, we're done here. We'll just move on somewhere else. Certain companies can't do that, but others could. Uh, so you're talking about interest arbitration? Is that what you're it's the, the binding arbitration, you know, it's, it, once a union certified, you've got um, 90 days to bargain a contract. If you don't have one, it goes to mediation, and then it goes to an arbitration panel. Right. And, then, and, and the, arbit the arbitration panel can then engage in a type of interest arbitration where terms could be imposed. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, and and of course, uh, when it, when it gets to that point, then that means both sides are going to be taking something that is not that is less than what what is desirable. But at the end of the day, the union is walking away with a collective bargaining agreement, as opposed to a certification. That's true, and. Uh, there's also a section in there, it, it doesn't say sectoral bargaining, but it's taking a look at um, wages and benefits of other companies, you know, within a market, similar mm -hmm. contracts. It's almost like area-wide mm -hmm. bargaining for construction units. That, you know, if, if all of a sudden mm -hmm. you're a non-union construction company and you get a contract imposed on you that puts you into a union pension fund or other things, that's like a, a seismic shift for a lot of companies. Right, from going mm -hmm. non-union business model to union business model under an area-wide agreement. 
Like that's that's a big leap. But I and I really didn't want to get into the details of Proact because we could spend hours on this. Um, but it's it's one of those things where it's especially, just like, especially since with the filibuster, it, it it's not likely it's going to see the light of day anytime soon. Right. Yeah. So um, so the institute doing this kind of goes back to my my first question. The institute is um, more advocacy and public information is, and I kind of wanted to ask this generally. Like I'm familiar with Cornell. Um, my degree is from a smaller college in labor relations, and it was a, a balanced kind of degree where it's labor and management practitioners were both part of the program. Mm -hmm. But is is there anything out there anymore that does more of a balanced approach, you know, to public outreach, so to speak? Well, Cornell's ILR school has probably as many people that are future HR and future management attorneys in, in its program than, than union advocates. I taught at, taught at Cornell for, for half a semester, and I would say the mixture of students leaned heavily towards students that are, were going into employee relations. So, so you're interfacing with students now, um, and I, this is kind of a general question. Are you seeing a difference of, say, the students today than, say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago? This kind of gets well, to what, what's happening across the country. Yeah. Well, I wasn't teaching 10, 10 or 20 years ago, but I, I can say this, that, that uh, from my understanding about offerings at a lot of the law schools, uh, labor law courses had been on, a, on the decline. I mean, when I went to law school, I was able to take labor law one, labor law two, collective bargaining, lawyers' role in negotiation, um, public sector labor law, administrative law. You know, there was a there was a ton of labor law courses being available to me at my law school at University of Buffalo at the time. Um, a lot of students that I've interviewed while I was a policymaker and was interviewing people for my staff. Um, a lot of uh, law graduates were talking about how they had to struggle to try to find a labor law court course to take, and they were having a difficult time uh, showing on their resume a demonstrated interest in labor law because the offerings were that that few and far between. Right. Um, at one time, uh, Georgetown itself offered a a master's of labor law and, and has dispensed with that for for a good while, and, and it's my hope that it'll return. Now, but all that is to say, however, what I'm seeing among the incoming students and inquiries that I'm getting, emails that I'm getting from students considering coming to Georgetown is a keen and a peaking interest in labor law and labor advocacy. Uh, heretofore, people who are going into the, a, a, a field such as this were, were usually going into employment law, either plaintiff side or employer side. Now, labor, labor law has become a lot more of interest as of late, and a lot of that has to do 
with with um, a younger workforce that is being more excited about protected concerted activity, about the the connection between between um, social justice issues and labor law. Um, look at what happened at, at Google, where there was a major Google walk, walkout several years ago to right. protest particular um, conduct on the part of upper management, and, and, and it caused results. Look at what happened with, with the Me Too movement, and uh, which, which pre ultimately resulted in legislation uh, stopping forced arbitration uh, for Me Too types, type cases. And all of that was precipitated by organizing activity among the current workforce. So, so I would say that that kind of interest is on the rise. So what, um, what do you attribute that to? And, and since coming out of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of activity, mostly at Starbucks, and then and a lot of it is, I think, um, other, other than Starbucks, a lot of it's media-driven, Amazon, of course, but there's been a tremendous amount of uptick coming out of the pandemic in terms of just that protected concerted activity, the one-day work stoppages, things like that. Is that due to well, the pandemic or is this been a slow? There are, well, I think that there are multifaceted considerations, all, all kind of correlating. Um, Yes, you have the pandemic, but before you had the, the pandemic, you had Fight for 15, you had Occupy, you had Me Too. All of that preceded the pandemic. Um, and that, that stimulated a lot of, uh, of, of concerted activity and social, the, the combination of that with, with social media. You're talking about um, heretofore a workforce viewing Unions as as heavy industry people with guys with crew, crew cuts and and and, uh, and and work boots. Uh, now they're seeing that that uh, in the tech industry uh, that people might have issues with respect to to keeping their own device at the desk. Um, <laughs> what kind of work life programs are available? Uh, um, parents might be looking for lactation rooms. So the, the, there's a whole lot of, and there's there's a desire for for parental leave that, that includes paternity leave as well as maternity leave. A lot more conceptual differences with respect to the kind of demands and the kind of discussions that workers want to have at the workplace. So you have that, and then you have the pandemic, and the pandemic taught an interesting lesson. One, employers were not really acquitting themselves well by demonstrating that they really had a genuine concern about the health and welfare of their workers. And they were willing to push workers that were vulnerable and quote unquote essential workers into the fire without any kind of protection. So workers had to make two types of assessment. One assessment is, do I really want to do this anymore? 
<laughs> maybe this is not the kind of work that I should continue doing. Hence the great resignation. And then the other consideration was, well, I'm a unionized worker and I need protection and my union is there and advocating for me. And those non-union workers that are seeing how unions are advocating for me are starting to say, well, we want similar protections as well. Maybe we need to unionize. And then there is another consideration. And that is during the pandemic, several contracts expired and the memory of the bargaining unit was acute with respect to how relationships were. So when John Deere, Caterpillar and Kaiser per Permanente and Kellogg and a lot of these healthcare ins institutions um, and, and IATSE, all of these came to the table and the employers hit them with the same crap that they always did, like two-tier systems and givebacks and, 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 and whatnot. The unions for the first time in decades were saying, wait a minute, we got the power here. You're going to have to change your game. And it's not just us. It's the tail wagging the dog. We can't go back to our bargaining unit with the kind of crap you're offering us because they're the ones ready to walk. And so we had striped over. Um, so, so we, and what gave the kind of fire and the, and the, the kind of oomph and the kind of strength in, in that whole process was a unified workforce during a time when workers were needed and workers were a big commodity and they still are. So the, um, I'd like to see if I can summarize this a little bit. It's almost as though the uh, pressure cooker had been building up to the pandemic and then that became the trigger to release it. Well, it was certainly catalyst, catalytic, yes. Yeah. It's, well, it's fascinating because we were having worker shortages prior to 2020. I mean, the, the unemployment was down to three and a half or 3.6 or whatever it was. And, and um, it was starting, we're starting to see the wages rise. And now we're, you know, 3.5, 3.6. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about, um, again, you know, worker shortages through the summer. Companies are going to either have to shut down shorten hours, restaurants, et cetera. And at some point, um, it's, it's probably going to hit the economy pretty hard, especially as inflation keeps going up, gas and all that stuff, where there's only so much you can raise wages and non-union and union are, are having to do it just to attract people in there. There's trucking companies like throwing thousands of dollars for hiring bonuses just to get uh, their foot in the door, get drivers to get their foot in the door. And at some point, it's going to go, ah, probably a little bit too much, and then we're going to have another backlash, which is, you know, it just goes back and forth cyclically. I wanted to ask you, um, and I, I should have started it with this, what got you into, so you went to law school, what got you into the labor side versus management side versus employment law? 
because you had a you had a practice that was labor side up in Buffalo, right? That's right. So what what made you go in that direction? Well, I, can, I came from a labor family, and I was a, I was I'm the son of immigrants. My my mother and father came from the Caribbean. Uh, my father's first uh, job was ground crew at an at an airline, and he had a he had a union contract. Probably my first pair of glasses and my first filling in my mouth came from uh, benefits that were negotiated in the collective bargaining agreement that either my father or my mother had. My uncle was a a um, a business agent for, with with International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers in the manufacturing division in New York. When I was in undergraduate school, I, I worked as a college helper through a special program that the unions negotiated for matric, matriculating sons of, of, of union members. I worked on the World Trade Center when it was being built. I saw Pierre Petit tightrope across the, the Twin Towers. I learned early what, what a hard day's work for a hard day's uh, labor meant. And I also learned early what it meant, meant to have solidarity in, in, in terms of protecting your rights. I saw how, how organized workers did what they could to protect themselves. And that all had value for me. And then, then I, I started working with the NLRB and, and, and learned about the, the National Labor Relations Act and was just fascinated with, with that aspect of the law, irrespective of its frailties and, 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 and uh, infirmities. I, I still am frustrated by the fact that the, the act was created and designed intentionally to exclude domestic workers and, and agricultural workers primarily because in 1935 the vast majority of those in that those categories were people of color um, so to institutionalize that kind of racism in an act that was so meaningful to to the workplace it continues to be a frustration that's that's an interesting take because I've never heard the exclusions of uh, domestic and agricultural workers to be based on race. I was I was always um, it's frankly never come up. I, I was always under the impression because agricultural workers were back and forth going from employer to employer that was part of that exclusion, and then domestic workers because they were working for rich people um, they couldn't unionize because it was a one on one type of relationship. That's always well, my one, one advantage of be, being an academia now, I've done a lot of reading in, in that respect. And when you look at some of the legislative history surrounding that which was kept into the act and that which was eliminated from the act, you can see that it was racism that was part of the motivation for, for Wagner to be able to get the Southern Dixiecrats to vote for him, for, for the Wagner Act. That was the deal that had to get cut. Interesting. I'd never heard of that. Um, now i got to go back and read. <laughs> so <laughs> let me 
so let me kind of bring us forward a little bit. Um, now I've been around the union since the Reagan era and I was mm -hmm. a union worker after Patco and, you know, the, the whole wave of the eighties of permanent replacements, et cetera, which has always mm -hmm. been around since, um, McKay radio, right. Back mm -hmm. in, was that 38? The, um, do you, you've probably seen the, the pendulum swing back and forth, right? Sure. Certainly from Reagan eras, that, but it, it seems as though, um, so the Reagan board is, you know, labeled as anti-union. Then the Bush board was just kind of a carry on. And then Clinton, the Clinton board started swinging it back. And then uh, Bush two came in, right? And, and I recall the uh, 2007 when they, the Senate wouldn't confirm a couple of Bush's appointees. And it, it seems to have become more progressively um, just vociferously arguing against each other back and forth. And it, it seems to the pendulum is swinging further and further with, with each administration. Do you find that at all? I agree. Yes. That, that, and it's, uh, it's complex in that you had that period where you had Jenkins, Pinello, and, and um, oh, I'm forgetting his name, not the one that was there the longest. Um, there was a period where you had board members that, whose terms lasted for decades. And, and they were there for so long that you, you almost forgot what party affiliation they had because they, they just, presidents just left them alone. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, what happened when, when Reagan decided to set a new standard in terms of how labor relations was going to be played, not only did he, he do what he did historically with PACO, um, he, um, you know, the, the practice of the board is that the president's party gets three and the other party gets two on the five-member board. Um, now, that usually manifests itself as, uh, as two if, if the president is a Republican, the two Democrats on the board were generally pro-labor pro Democrats. Well, Reagan um, put two Democrats on the board, but these were all, these were two management attorneys that happened to be Democrats. So you didn't really see any kind of change in, in, in flavor. And so, uh, once that gauntlet was thrown down, then Clinton and, and everybody subsequent started to put people on the board who, whose affiliations or philosophies were, were clearly entrenched in a particular uh, position or, or the other. Uh, and then even if one were to to um, argue that they were just pursuing uh, enforcement of the board in the way that the act and the way that that was designed, um, the public beratement and and the um, 
the the <coughs> spin that had been placed on every nominee was such that nobody was looked at as neutral. Everybody was looked at as somebody that is delivering an agenda for one side or the other. Um, people said that about me. Of course, you know, uh, after my term expired and I was being complicated, comp contemplated by the Trump administration to continue on as a, as a board member, um, the Wall Street Journal and Forbes and all of these other magazines laid out this whole <laughs> uh, uh, diatribe about that uh, tagged me with being responsible for every progressive thing that had happened with the National uh, Labor Relations Act since its creation. I'm flattered, but you know, I don't think I'm that old. Uh, did, did you reverse 4,000 years of, of precedent or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's a nice spin. Yeah, that's, that's what that is. Um, so, and of course, you can see that this this Trump board in in only four years, had the kind of stuff that they had had done with with not a whole lot of uh, need to to um, wait for the appropriate case to do that. They would take a case and reach in that case to issues that were not even presented by the parties, just so that they can get it and make the changes. Uh, so, so that that kind of aggressive uh, oscillation that is going on, I would say, is more acute than it has been in, in times past. Uh, folks are saying, "Well, maybe rulemaking will be the way to go because it'll kind of etch um, policy in stone, and both unions and employers will have a better sense of what the law should be." Uh, However, the, the use of rulemaking thus far has demonstrated that there is a partisan um, angle to what kind of rules that are be, being pushed. And accordingly, um, if rulemaking becomes the name of the game versus adjudication, um, you're going to still have that waffling back and forth, but just by means of a different process, and uh, nobody wins. Well, one of the one of the problems with this is, um, and I, from a practitioner standpoint, as well as um, if you listen to the business community. It, when the rules change every three, four, or five years, nobody knows what the rules of the game are until either you're you're caught in you know having an unfair labor practice filed against you. It's like the handbook rules that are that have been back and forth for the last eight years. You know, mm -hmm. and so just if you're trying to run a business, it's difficult to do. There's well, there's no just standard anymore. The solution would be legislation. And at the outset of our conversation, we talked about efforts towards legislation reform. Uh, the, uh, the National Labor Relations Act has not been 
reformed or modified in a way that advanced workers' rights since its inception. It was established in 35, and then in 47, um, the, uh, the Taft-Hartley amendments were made, and those amendments restricted employee rights. And then in, what, 52 or so, the, the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act uh, came into being, which imposed more requirements on unions relative to internal union democracy and so forth. So uh, while, you know, there can be arguments that some of those pieces of legislation were necessary, they were no less necessary than, an, than the need to expand employee rights to protect the vulnerable employees like independent contractors and, 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 and the like. Yet, there has not been any uh, appetite for those kind of changes. And we talked about EFCA, we talked about uh, the PRO Act, so there, there would be an argument um, that perhaps reliance on government to address these issues is the wrong direction. And, and that argument I would base upon Samuel Gompers, who for, and I'm going to kind of bastardize this a little bit, he forewarned unions at the time that if you put your eggs in the government basket, that basket will swing. Like that pendulum swings, and it, it later proved true. He died in 1924, and 35 was the Wagner Act. Twelve years later, he had Taft-Hartley, right? And so it's, you know, and Gompers, for all of his issues, because he certainly had issues, but he kind of foresaw what would happen to unions if they relied too much on government. And, and this, has yeah. been, this has been kind of my argument for 25 years, almost 30 years since I left the union movement. Um, well, yeah, but we can't look at history myopically. We got to look at what was happening prior to the prior to the legislation. We had thousands of strikes. We had millions of people on strike. We had people being killed. We had had uh, women being burnt in fires. We had abject poverty. And we had overt racism among union rank and file. Remember, uh, people of color were often strike breakers because they weren't allowed to join the unions. Right. Um, if it wasn't for a lot of this legislation, that would have continued. Um, I, I get Samuel Gomper's point that, that the government is definitely not uh, the, 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 um, the altruistic um, avenue for, for uh, a, a wonderful relationship. But left to its own devices, uh, labor has not historically demonstrated that it is an all-inclusive mechanism for providing labor peace and providing 
of labor equity without a little bit of help. Yeah, that well, and that's in the um, preamble of the NLRA, you know, to promote industrial peace through collective bargaining, right? And the, and the 20s and early 30s were certainly, and even before that, was certainly filled with all kinds of bad things going on. Um, but when it comes to, I, I guess the, the question is, do we need the government so far into the process of, say, dictating how collective bargaining works, you know, and that's, it's a more of a philosophical question, but um, I, having come from the union movement, I kind of have been waiting for, I think if unions kind of went back to their original model, which is craft-based versus industrial-based, there's a bigger place for them in society than what's happened today. In other mm -hmm. words, they kind of got away from the apprenticeship, and I, and we saw this in 2005 with the Change to Win Coalition, where you know SEIU was going to train health care workers, Teamsters were going to train truck drivers, and we're starting to see it a little bit now with the Teamsters mm -hmm. and Yellow Freight. Um, but that's you know that was the model that unions had, at least in the crafts for decades, and they still do in the construction trades. Where mm -hmm. if you look at society today, um, we've we've gotten so uh, we're in a service sector, but they can still do the same thing that they did back then. And then if you make yourself more attractive to employers, they may be less resistant to you. Mm -hmm. Like if I can get the well, best electrician, yeah. I'm going to go to the IBW. Sure, sure. I, I, I see your point, Peter, but, you know, as an African-American, I, I can't ignore that, that a lot of those father and son kind of deals with these apprenticeship programs were as much a means of exclusion as it was a means of Oh, training. without a doubt. Yeah, and in fact, they are in some ways still today. Yeah. And it's, it's just a matter of, you know, as a business model, um, and if you look at whether it's mass production or service sector or, you know, trucking, for example, where unions would have a very good value for society is to become that training mechanism and, and we're having this debate, you know, um, societally about the value of college versus trade schools, mm. right? You know, do you need to spend a hundred grand to go get a four-year degree and maybe be unemployable versus, you know, going to twist a wrench or going to weld or become a truck driver? Mm. It has, I, I think the unions have a value with that. Um, and I don't know that it's been explored enough from the standpoint of, um, as opposed to just unionizing people just for the sake of unionizing. And I, and I think there's a, been such a focus on membership. You know, we've got to rebuild our ranks at all costs versus what are you, what are you bringing to the table, not just for the workers, but to overcome the resistance, mm -hmm. you know, make yourself well, attractive. A, I mean, the, the complexity of, of considering sector, the return to sectoral bargaining uh, is, is huge and and a, a one glaring thing that that that, that sectoral bargaining uh, would have to figure out and that is the need and the desire for a a grassroots worker grip driven drive and sectoral bargaining does not necessarily provide that opportunity for 
grassroots grassroots organizing. Um, I use I, I parallel grassroots organizing with the two campaigns that we, we've observed recently. We look at um, Amazon and Bessemer, where there was an outside union that, that came in and, and tried to organize in Alabama and initially has been unsuccessful. Um, and then you look at what happened in Staten Island, New York with, with Amazon uh, through a union that was organized among the workers themselves and, and how uh, what a, a, what Amazon was denied was the ability to start pointing at the union as an outsider because the union was the employees themselves. What Amazon did instead was try to target, identify the union with somebody that they didn't think could rally the support, Chris Smalls. And again, that was racism. And it flew in Amazon's face. They thought that let's make Chris Malls the face of labor and he'll be, be a laughingstock and, and lose support. Well, it was because of his charisma. Why? <laughs> but that organizing campaign was successful. So, I mean, the, the, the point that I'm making is it is the power of, of employee worker-generated drive that is the spark that may be the trend of the modern day labor organizing uh, and the labor organizing of, of, of the future. And, um, and does that comport with a sectoral model? I don't know. Well, yeah, and then, but even the sectoral model. Um, Unless it can be won at the bargaining table, you're still looking at government injecting itself into that process. Mm -hmm. And if government does that, realizing that everything is political, eventually that's going to come back and bite the units. And that's and I've said this on other programs. Mm -hmm. I, I lean more libertarian, like get the get the government out as much as possible of labor relations and let the parties work themselves out not to the extent that they're shooting each other in the streets and all of that like they used to, but, you know, to the point where you got to let the parties do what they need to do legally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, otherwise it's, again, it's going to come back from a 1947 standpoint, 1959 with, with Landrum Griffin, et cetera. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, Chairman Pierce, I don't know how much time you have, but we've been on close to an hour and I really wanted to ask you, what may be a more important question to you is you're an artist. And I did not know that till about a week ago. And I, I mentioned somebody I was, was yeah. going to have you on. And he said, well, he's an artist. And so I, I sought out your art online and your website, which I want to link to under the, uh, the audio portion of this episode. What medium do you use? Uh, my favorite medium is, is oil on canvas. Okay. I've been I've been painting for for at least four decades. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell looking I saw uh, at least one sketch, but I couldn't tell if that was acrylic or oil. And and you've got um, some labor specific and I I like your uh, self portrait. 
about the artist. You're you're again without the beard, by the way. Saying, oh, saying thank you. Okay. yeah. So yeah, yeah. I I did I have a series called The Other Rosies, which was kind of inspired by uh, a lot of uh, the uh, the WPA um, photographs by uh, photographers like Dorothea Lang. Um, it uh, I I recreated some of some of her paint, paint pictures in my paintings and you know embellished upon them and so forth. I wanted to give homage to the the roses of color because as you know the Italic. Um, the iconic uh, Rosie the Riveter was, mm-hmm. was this white woman. Um, and there were so many Rosies of color, black, brown, and, and Asian that, that really did not uh, get, get their due. And in so doing, I did a little bit of research and, and was pleased to discover that not only was uh, Darts Thea Lang's uh, photographs um, instructive, but learning about shipping, shipbuilding uh, facilities like in Richmond, California, where during World War II, Richmond, California produced a lot of naval ships. There, the, the, uh, the, the shipyard there were very diverse shipyards. And in fact, the SS George Washington Carver, only the second naval ship named after an African American, was built at the Richmond shipyards. Um, so, you know, I, I painted some paintings uh, celebrating all of that. And uh, um, over, overarching all of those considerations is the efforts of A. Philip Randolph who in 1943 um, demanded that there be equity for uh, workers of color. Uh, and it's so much so that he threatened FDR with a march on Washington. You know, that's the famous 1963 march on Washington mm-hmm. that everybody knows about with, with uh, uh, King's iconic I Have a Dream speech. But it was A. Philip Randolph who parenthetically organized that 63 march as well. He was the one who first went to FDR in 1942 and said, we're going to march. And Roosevelt, in order to stop him from marching, issued an executive order getting rid of stopping discrimination in the hiring of people of color in the defense industry. And as a result, the other Rosies were born. Uh, so my ultimate and final uh, other Rosie painting will probably be one of A. Philip Randolph. I haven't, haven't imagined it in my head yet, but it's coming. Now, are you are you exhibiting in any museums or you haven't? Uh, well, you know, I, I was on the precipice of, of, a, of, of a, a solo exhibition a couple of years ago, and then the pandemic hit, and then all kind of like got tossed to the side. I'm trying to refocus all of that stuff and reestablish my contacts in order to get it done. 
I hope to exhibit here in DC and, and maybe in New York City. Presently, I have done some exhibition and as, as part of Roger exhibits in, in Buffalo. Yeah, they're gorgeous I, paintings. I, thank you so much. They're, uh, and yeah, they're, it's, um, I'm definitely going to include the link to the, uh, the art on the podcast or under the, uh, under the audio portion. But, um, yeah, and if you've got commuters, the, the subway riders, several others, I'm just flipping around as we're talking. Yeah. And, and I did a lot, several paintings that were pandemic and influenced as well. well. Well, Chairman Pierce, it was an honor for you to come on and I appreciate the conversation. I think, I think it's valuable to have like kind of the back and forth just because everybody is so in their own camps these days and, and has been for a long time, but it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. rare that you have yeah. management labor side or, or. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, that was former NLRB Chairman Mark Pierce, and I don't believe he was feeling uh, up to snuff or he was feeling a little bit under the weather, so I really appreciated him coming on and spending the time with me on Labor Relations Radio. I found our conversation fascinating, especially when it got to the PRO Act. Um, Obviously, we have a little bit of a disagreement about binding arbitration. However, it did occur to me as we were talking, I didn't want the episode to bog down just on that specific issue, but it occurred to me that we should probably do an episode and and a deeper dive into the PRO Act, and perhaps with somebody who is also pro-PRO Act, maybe he'll come on or somebody else. In any case, um, I appreciated him coming on, and maybe we'll do it again. And that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List, and if you want to reach out, you can leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode, or you can tweet at me at Workplace Report, that's at Workplace RPT, or... Uh, give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.